When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. Join more of the things you love with TCL. These two guys have Minnesota sports flowing in their veins. Mackie and Judd on Score North and scorenorth.com. Hey everyone, and welcome in to the Mackie and Judd Show. Quarantine edition, day four here. Real quick, before we dive into Judd's Keys to a Vikings Victory and to Action Movie Rewind, Halloween, the original. And also, uh, we'll wrap with Royce and get his thoughts on 76-year-old Tony LaRusa now managing the White Sox for a second time. Um, how long does it take a guy to get a damn COVID test back in the state of Minnesota? Judd and I have been waiting for like three days for these saliva tests back. So we're just quarantining and hibernating, basically. It's not bad, though. I mean, I'm stuck at home, but I got a TV. I got beer. You normally got, would, right? Don't tell anybody, okay? <laughs> oh, okay, but I mean, yeah, it's not the worst thing. The doctor's like, Judd, we're going to need you to quarantine. No. Post-show, post-show, I might have to go take a nap. I mean, come on. How ridiculous is that? I would go for my run ordinarily. Oh, no, I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. No. <laughs> It's true. Uh, the good news is Declan is feeling a lot better today, and uh, it seems like you're sort of past the worst of it. So that's awesome to hear. Uh, Federated is here helping business owners, and uh, and Federated is here in the state of Minnesota, going back to over 100 years, supporting business owners and understanding that local businesses are really the heart of our communities. And you guys are going through a tough time in 2020, uh, especially certain industries. So if if you're uh, looking for that peace of mind, if you're if you're just looking for frontline protection and resources as a business owner, FederatedInsurance.com has a ton of great resources for you to check out. That's also where you can find your local marketing representative. Also, uh, they've got takes on Twitter too, just like we do at Federated INS for fresh, relevant risk management content on a variety of topics. So Federated Insurance. Owatonna, Minnesota, since the early 1900s. Remember, at Federated, it is always our business to protect yours. And uh, what's that I hear? Yonder are those Judd's keys to an improbable Vikings victory. (laughs) He's got the the key fob. The the plastic rattling. (laughs) The key Uh, fob to unlock your doors. Yeah, we don't have all the we don't have all of our normal production bells and whistles because we're just doing these shows from home all week. But uh, we're improvising on the fly. And uh, and Judd Zolgad Keys hopefully is is well rested after a bye week and uh, looking ahead at the daunting task of helping the Vikings to a win over the Packers. I would not I would not advise the Vikings to beat the Packers. I think this is a must tank game for Minnesota. How does how does Keys see things? So. 
first of all, Keys is a realist, okay? So Keys sat me down last night and said, I can't really call this Keys to a win because this team stinks. They've got one win. So Keys termed this, the headline is Keys to a probable loss, all right? Because Keys is a realist. And look, the Packers should score about 52. You know, I mean, with the Vikings secondary in shambles, Ngakwe's gone, no pass rush. So key number, I've got four. Key number four, let's start at the bottom, is, and this is an interesting one, because Keys goes, mines into the special teams here. Get your kicks. That's because of this. That's Here's the special teams angle to this game. The, the Packers injury report is a substantial one. Lots of names. It's very long. It's very in-depth. Among those on the injury report for the Green Bay Packers are Mason Crosby who has a calf issue in his non-kicking leg and a back problem. Mason Crosby sounds like he's going to play and kick on Sunday in a lot of pain. If this game, let's say it's crazy. Let's say it's uh, late in the game. It's uh, 52-50 because these teams can't stop uh, (laughs) defensively, can't stop a thing. Is it a is it, is it a, a Big Twelve game? What it, it could did, be. Did Texas Tech? Have you looked Oklahoma? at these defenses? There's a possibility it could be. Green so, Bay's got a better. It has a respectable defense. It's better than the Vikings, but that's not saying a lot. So anyway, Mason Crosby comes out for a late field goal attempt. You know, let's say it's 48 yards. Well, the calf issue in his non kicking leg still means that's his plant leg, and if he's got a back, that's a real problem. So. The Vikings are going to need to make their kicks because the Packers kicker might basically not be able to. So that's the first one. Get your kicks. So in keys in a probable loss, that would probably fit into the to the potential win column. But I assure you, it's going to get worse. All right. I see where keys is going there. Yeah, I think uh, I think if the Vikings were to eke this out because Mason Crosby like had a glute cramp up or something, that would be. And then they miss out on Trevor Lawrence. That would be the ultimate Vikings thing. All right, key number two. Or what, I'm sorry, key number three. We're coming. Key number down. three. We're going backwards. It's very, very simple. Trap them. The Packers are five and one. And as we talked about on the show yesterday, they're going to play the San Francisco 49ers next Thursday night. Okay, so just four days off. This is and and the Packers are six and a half point favorites at home on Sunday against. The Vikings. Everybody knows by this point the Vikings stink. Uh, week one, these teams played obviously at US Bank Stadium. The Vikings lost 43 to 34. The point being is this is, unfortunately, if you're on the tank train, this is a massive potential trap game, especially with Green Bay turning around and playing a team that beat up on it twice last year, including in the playoffs. So this is, if there's one potential here, it's that this could be a major trap game for Green Bay and the Vikings could benefit from the Packers basically saying, we'll win this one. What about San Francisco? Okay. Yeah, I actually, I can kind of see that angle. I think, you know, I I don't think the Vikings are going to like, I think they're going to show a little bit of a pulse, but I just don't think they have the horses defensively to, to keep up. But I could see Justin Jefferson having a big one. Like I could see him scoring a couple touchdowns, Kirk Cousins throwing a couple passes downfield, a little broken coverage. You know, I could see Dalvin Cook until he re-aggravates his groin injury. Oh, that, that's coming up. Um, I, I could see them giving the Packers a little bit of a run offensively in this one. So yeah, tra- tra- it's it's very rare that we view the Vikings as an opponent in, in a trap game. But um, yeah, I could see that. All right, key number two. Two. Keys getting creative here. 
protect protect your assets. That's right. Trade deadline, 3 p.m. Central on Tuesday, right? You have you do have, hopefully, for the Vikings' sake, tradable commodities that that you I guess the question is, are you going to play them? If you're close to a trade, I would not. I, I would personally make them inactive for Sunday's game. But this is this is the first really key in a probable loss is do you – because we think of – I think the common thinking of tanking is like, well, just lose – the go out there and lose the game. I mean, players don't do that. Like in football especially, no player says, I am playing to lose because I know it's going to help my team get a top – Notch quarterback for 2021. Guys are playing for their job. And I actually believe in football, there is an argument to be made that if you don't go your hardest, you probably could get hurt because it's a bad idea. So nobody like just tanks. But but Ngakwe is gone. And if you're close to trading a Harris, uh, a a guy like Riley Reef, the question becomes, do you, before kickoff, decide, I'm not going to play them because if they get hurt, I can't trade them on Tuesday. It's imperative to me that from Spielman on down, the Vikings um, protect their potential assets in this game. And if that means starting Ezra Cleveland at left tackle on Sunday, it's not ideal right now, but I think it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Even just like it just makes sense to start Ezra, Ezra Cleveland at left tackle, period, even if you're not protecting an asset because he is your left tackle of the future. Or if he's not, find it out as quickly as you can and go from there. Um, I, I don't see any reason uh, unless teams just aren't able to eat the prorated uh, base salary of Riley Reef. Like, do you see any reason why he's still on the team come next Wednesday? Zero. Zero. I would trade Harris. I, I would trade. Um, I would trade Reef. I would trade Kyle for sure. No, I don't. I don't. Unless you've had, unless you literally take them to market. Now, Harris is a little bit weird because he would get you a third round compensatory pick if he walks away um, after the season. So I could see if a team's like, I'll give you a fifth round pick on on Harris alone. I could see saying, Nah, that's not enough. But on Rudolph, Phil, or on Reef. If you say, I'll give you a sixth round pick, take it. If they if they actually deem some of their veteran players uh, to to not get the return that they are trying to get and they don't make trades based on that, in my opinion, that's a big problem at the top. You have to trade those guys. I don't care what they've done for you. I don't care if you like them. I don't care if they come to you and say, please don't trade me. You have to do right now, seriously, Dex, you have to do what's best for your team. And with the veteran core here, that largely will be tearing it down. Yeah. I'm with you. And by the way, like you'll find other guys through the draft that you like that are mm-hmm. that are into local charities, like um, that you can bring them all back to celebrate, you know, as former yeah. Vikings and you know, Ring of Honor celebrations. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can no longer be part of Vikings culture and and uh, you know like Johan Santana got tra- got traded to the Mets. That was an ill-advised trade. I'll have you know, but he was still part of the Twins family and stuff. I mean, um, when it when it comes time to trade someone and your franchise is going into a rebuilding, well, I guess the, the the comparison there would be a little bit apples to oranges because the Twins, when they traded Johan Santana, for instance. Uh, they were still in a winning window. And so that was more of a like, we can't afford to pay him move. Well, this no is, traded. 
yep, I mean, this is yeah. just you've you've got to say goodbye to people and players that you like in order to build something that uh they can jump back up into the future. So you, you traded in his prime still, Randy Moss. Mm-hmm. If you can trade Randy Moss in his prime, then you can trade an older guy who is not in his prime who likes it here. Okay. Yep. It's and that hard. brings us to key number one, Judd's keys to a Vikings well, victory. Sort of a, lo- a probable loss. Because okay. I'm not I'm not going with definite defeat. I'm going with uh, keys in a probable loss. We, we have all, all heard of the late game football term, the Hail Mary pass, right? Well, key number one is just this, prayer time. And here's why. The Packers are second in the National Football League behind a Hall of Fame quarterback in scoring. They are averaging. They are averaging 32.8 points per game, all right? The Vikings defense with Ngakwe, with more cornerbacks than they will have on Sunday because we don't know who's going to play. We have no clue. The Vikings are 30th in giving up points. A Mike Zimmer defense, they are giving up 32 points per game. Again, I'll say it. The Packers are second in the entire league in scoring. The Vikings are second to last in that same category. Yeah. In week one, in week one, in your uh, 43-34 loss at U.S. Bank Stadium, Devontae Adams, 17 targets, 14 catches, 156 yards, and two touchdowns. That was against cornerbacks you consider to be better than are going to play on Sunday. That's a problem. Go here. Here's my advice. Zim and the boys, if you think that you have any chance here, there, there is a church in Ashwabanon right down the street from Lambeau Field, all right? Sunday morning masses probably start 7.30 or so. Go to the church. Forget film. Forget pep talks. Go to the church and say a prayer. You are going to need it. Look at the cornerbacks who might play on Sunday against a Hall of Fame quarterback with with. Devontae Adams, I believe, healthy and set to go. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. So I I gave you guys this nugget uh, during our one of our Purple Daily uh, shows that we recorded here, and it's that Jeff Gladney, a perfect passer rating is 158.3. And Jeff Gladney, when targeted by opposing quarterbacks, has a 143.8 passer rating against (laughs) So I don't see how that all of a sudden gets a lot better against Aaron Rodgers. And that is not a referendum on Jeff Gladney and his ceiling or trajectory as a player. He's just being thrown in with no offseason workouts and no preseason against some of the best quarterbacks in the world. I mean, this dude has faced Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers twice, Matt Ryan, like he's Deshaun Watson. You're just getting a, a, a Ph.D., and some of the best quarterbacks in the world, and it will continue this week against the Packers. Can I give you the the names of the four corners who I think might play substantial time Sunday? Mark, you, honestly, you could be making a couple of these names yeah. up, and Declan and I wouldn't know. I had to write them down. Mark Fields, the second, who was okay. on the practice squad, and I think they brought him up for the practice squad on Monday. Now, I don't think that this guy's been practicing, so he probably won't, won't play, but he was claimed off waivers from the Cardinals this week, Chris Jones. Okay. Mm. Jeff Gladney will play. And and I believe he was a fifth-round pick this past April, Harrison Hand, who actually played substantial time against the Falcons. Dantzler is out on the COVID list. Holton Hill, I think, is probably going to be out with a foot problem. Mike Hughes, neck problem. No way he plays. Chris Boyd hamstring. So again, so again, Mark Fields, the second 
Chris Jones, maybe. Jeff Gladney, okay. Harrison Hand. Those so are the four corners. Is there any way, because you know Mike Zimmer is obviously thinking about the same thing, but he, he's he's a brilliant defensive X's and O's mind. He needs the chess pieces. He doesn't have them. But you know that he's taking on this challenge and thinking, all right, no one's expecting us to do anything defensively. Yep. I'm going to put together a creative game plan, and I'm going to bust out something that we haven't done yet this season. Is that possible? Like, is it possible he could take – he's playing chess with checker pieces. Right. Could he somehow create some sort of smoke and mirrors systematically X's and O's wise, or is it just impossible? What would you do, though? Because – I have no idea. Like, like <laughs> against the Saints – so so the, the Saints' uh, playoff game plan was great, but that took Hunter and Griffin and shifted them inside, which was like, oh, yeah, that's that's – but those are two really good players. Yeah. What would you do? Like, I think you, I, I think you're asking Zim to make, um, make a five-star meal with ingredients from the garbage. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's one of those, uh, like contest chef shows like iron <laughs> chef or whatever. And, uh, you're literally asking him to take like two pieces of bubble gum, uh, a catcher's mitt and a Salisbury steak and make a gourmet meal out of it. Yeah, it's but, like, but it's like it, lunch meat. But if there's any chef defensively that I would trust to put something edible together, it would be Mike Zimmer. In this Eric game. Kendrick's a cornerback. They'll never see it coming. Oh, my God. God. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think that'd be a horrible idea. If you can cover <laughs> tight ends, I don't think it'd be that bad of an idea. Could he cover Devontae Adams for at least 10 yards? That's the question. Try it. <laughs> it's worth Try a it. shot. Just hold him. Just, <laughs> just pin his arms. <laughs> so those are Judd's four keys to... Most likely a Vikings loss, but we'll Probably see what happens. A must-tank game for the Minnesota Vikings in this one. Uh, quick shout-out before we jump into the feature of the week here. A quick shout-out to PodMN, your place to discover local podcasts, PodMN.com. You can discover local podcasts and get rewarded for listening to local podcasts, whether it's sports, non-sports. It's a brand-new app. It's free to download in the Apple and Google Play Store. So we don't have our normal intro. I'm guessing we probably don't have like sound bites and stuff, which is unfortunate. Uh, but Dex, I did, I did find a little something to kick us off here for Action okay. Movie Rewind. All right. Halloween. All right. That's right, boys. Wait for the bass. Uh, it's not coming for a while. But we're going to dive into... <laughs> coming for a while let's dive oh. right in here to action movie rewind we decided on this halloween week to uh to pivot from our classic action movie genre mm -hmm. and we just we pivoted to like a close first cousin to horror movies and we're gonna do we're gonna throw little little change-ups once in a while like once a month or once every other month and deviate from from action movies but uh, before we get into the summary and we get into all the the questions and details of this movie have you guys seen this movie straight through before? Not straight through. I, I, I've seen pieces, um, but I've never seen it straight through. Wow. Judd? No, never. This is never. your first year. Amazing. But, but I'm glad. Amazing. I'm actually, I'm actually glad because I came to it with an open mind and heart. Okay. Uh, well, this is, this is one of the – I mean, this is really like on the Mount Rushmore. If you, if you were to ask just the public, right, just ask like fans of movies and stuff and people who have been around – for 50 years this is on the mount rushmore of horror movies it's a trendsetter you could argue that it helped spawn uh, a long run of 80s slasher movies 
So here is the summary. All right. Halloween 1978. And there's been a ton of sequels. There's been remake. There's a Rob Zombie remake like 13 years ago. <laughs> and <laughs> they've got a couple more on the horizon, too. But uh, but the original on a cold Halloween night in 1963, six year old Michael Myers brutally murdered his 17 year old sister, Judith. He was sentenced and locked away for 15 years. But on October 30th, 1978, while being transferred for a court date, a 21 year old Michael Myers steals a car and escapes Smith's Grove. He (laughs) returns to his quiet hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, where he looks for his next victims 96 percent on rotten tomatoes this movie was recorded and filmed over a one-month period for a three hundred thousand dollar nickel and dime budget and it generated 70 million dollars at the box office one of the great in terms of just like financial successes in cinematic history starring jamie lee curtis who was unknown at this time and uh, and well-known Donald Pleasance, who had been in a number of different uh, big movies in the previous two decades. Let's start with Judd Zolgad, your key takeaway from the original Halloween. First of all, I have a thousand. But my my key takeaway, my key takeaway, and I will say this as as a praise to the, this film. And Phil, thank you for making me watch this film because it was genius. OK, like like it was genius. But my key takeaway was, and I mean this as a high compliment, was the honor it paid and the debt of gratitude it knew it owed from the second it started to Alfred Hitchcock and a film like Psycho. It yeah. was Psycho. Including the na- including some of the names, right? Uh, I think, uh, was it Dr. Loomis? Wasn't in- the n- Including the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter of Janet Leigh, who is stabbed to death by by oh. Norman Bates in yep. the shower. That's yes. her mom in real life. Yes. Wow. So um, you're talking about like probably the two most prominent female horror movie stars in terms the, of like just being icons. Yeah. And just it, it, great yeah. scenes. But I love the fact, like I didn't know if, if it was going to be a slasher film or what, and it's not. Um, but the genius, and, and it also, I love the fact too, that I believe, truthfully, there is a tie-in. There is a tie-in between Hard to Kill with Steven Seagal and this film. Wow. And it's and it's the thing that Seagal writes before he kills one of the bad guys in Hard to Kill. And this film does it perfectly, and Psycho did too. Anticipation of death is worse than death itself. Oh. Because this entire film is based on anticipation of death. Yes. Like the uh-huh. deaths aren't the deaths aren't that gruesome. The mm-hmm. death, it's it, and and the deaths aren't that hard to watch. What's hard to watch is the anticipation. So yes. I, but I loved, I loved how this was filmed. I loved everything about because because Hitchcock's just a genius, mm-hmm. and 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 the music, I, yeah, oh, great score, so great it, score. It, it, there's well, like there's, and, there's really like two songs in the whole movie. It's this right, one, but, and then there's like another one that's. But they're theme songs to to scenes. Like, mm-hmm. like, like, um, Myers has a theme song, like, you know, when it's coming. <laughs> so anyway, absolutely. My takeaway was this, this took a film like Psycho and paid homage to it while, while graduating it to, a, you know, a different set, a different time. I just loved it. Yeah. Uh, Declan, by the way, just to, uh, you're, 
you are definitely you have permission to hate this movie just just because we ripped on your movie like you can you can hate yeah. this movie you just give us your give us your biggest takeaway from this movie hey i i saw the list you tweeted out last night of all the movies i'm well aware three of the four worst movies we reviewed have been my picks <laughs> but i've also picked john wick which is also one of the best so like it, it, it evens uh, out a little bit, okay great. Love it evens out a little bit. So Love three it. of the four are dumpster fires by me, but also very on brand for me. I, I I throw in a bunch of dumpster and then I just hit one grand slam of a home run <laughs> to totally You're, redeem myself. Declan is a volume scorer in in life, in yes. in horror movies, in action <laughs> movies, in dating, you know, just yes. whatever. Oh, like don't let's let's not go there. Uh but my number one takeaway, and I'm gonna get really geeky here. It's it and Jug kind of talked on it. It's the cinematography of this movie. Like wow. the opening scene where it's totally in the eyes of young Michael Myers. Like he's stalking in the house. He's looking around. He throws the mask on. So then like you're seeing the camera runs through the little clown mask. And just, I I have to imagine, and maybe it wasn't groundbreaking, but like how simple the, like the filming of scenes were where it's, it's clearly like one long take. Like usually so many movies nowadays are cut, 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 cut. And it's it's really interesting how like throughout the entire film, like you're you're in the you're either in the persona of Michael Myers or like when they're driving around going up to the to, you know, the the insane asylum, whatever the hell it is. And you just are in basically you feel like you're in the car. You feel like you're in the movie. So even though it's a horror film and yes, the anticipation is what really like scares you and like keeps you going throughout the movie. It feels like you're literally there. Like it feels very real and i can understand and i was looking down the wikipedia wormhole too and a lot of people like saying like this is like one of the most sadistic films of all time just because like how it's shot and how like honestly realistic it could be yeah it is it is super creepy and i i love that you brought up the cinema we've we've reached peak action movie rewind now that we're talking about cinematography is great (laughs) but but you watch some of these uh like you watch a bruckheimer movie we've done like two or three jerry bruckheimer movies the rock um a couple other ones that we've done um, I think Enemy of the State, right? Or no, that was. Did we do Enemy of the State, or did I just no, no. different? Okay, so. I just watched that one a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> but like Jerry Bruckheimer movies, every two or three seconds, it's a new cut. And the first twenty-five or thirty minutes of this movie, it's like them. It's like Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends walking down the sidewalk. Michael Myers is like driving in a station wagon, <laughs> creeping by, or he's like. He's like standing in the bushes and then he's gone and it's these super long scenes and you have to wait like 50 or 60 minutes. It's only an hour and a half movie. You have to wait like 50 or 60 minutes before he actually starts like really killing the babysitters and the friends. So I think my main takeaway, I love horror movies and I think my main takeaway is more of a personal one in that this, when I saw this for the first time, like 15 or 20 years ago, it set me off on a lifelong journey of trying to watch any and every horror movie I could possibly get my hands on. And, and my wife hates horror movies. So when I watch them, it's usually like if I'm, you know, if I'm home alone for a weekend, I'll stack like two or three horror movies. I used to go to, you guys know that old movie theater uh, in St. Anthony, Maine. Oh, it's my normal spot. It's it's always been a regular spot for me too. And I've, and I used to live down in that area and um, I'd go down like whenever there was a new horror movie out, I would always go see the 10, the, like the 945 or 10 o'clock showing so that it's dark outside. It's creepy old part of Minneapolis. <laughs> and so I will just say that like Halloween, the original Halloween uh, is at the center of my love for horror movies, whether they're corny or whether they're amazing, whether they're slasher or whether they're more just like psychological. Um, let's go back to Judd here. Tell us your favorite part of Halloween. 
so it's it's a character um and <laughs> the way that this was done was absolutely genius and i loved it um donald pleasant's character the doctor is mm-hmm. the scariest person in the film he's the most creepiest scariest person michael My- myers is I mean, he's a bad guy. I get it, right? But like, he just sort of pops out, and he's he's creepy. But like, just from from the scene where originally they're driving to the insane asylum to get Myers, and it's it's the doctor and the nurse, and she's smoking, which is just hilarious. Um, and he's like talking in these sort of hushed, weird, creepy tones and stuff. I think it's really intriguing that they took a primary character who was supposed to quote unquote, save the day and made him super, super spooky and creepy, which, um, which is almost, smart. Almost like he's kind of in on it. Yeah, exactly. But I love that. I loved it because everything they did to me had a purpose. Like there was no like character who was like, ah, like, you know, if you have sex, you die. If you yep. get naked, you die. Yep. If you study hard, you don't die. So I, <laughs> It was like there, there were assigned roles really, really well done. And I just thought it was really smart that the guy who was supposed to come in and save things and that the doctor who was supposed to warn the town, actually, I thought, I really do. I thought he was the creepiest character in the entire film. Yeah. So we'll get to some notes on like the cast and Donald Pleasance, but I believe I saw something on the internet that, cause he, like he was the prominent actor in this movie and he was an, like an established credible actor. And they only got like of the three or four weeks of filming, they only got like a day or something with Donald Pleasance. And so they, they like filmed all of Donald Pleasance you know scenes funny? in like one day. Uh, I said that they couldn't, they couldn't afford him to stick around for like three weeks. So I said that to Dawn. I said, I think he filmed his, his scenes in one day. Cause like there were huge chunks of film where he would just disappear. It's yes. like, where'd the doctor go? <laughs> yeah. Where's the doctor? I yeah. said, I said that I said, I bet this guy came in for one day. Uh, and basically said, "All right, let's get this done." Uh, we need Shut like all the scenes. We need house. like we need like five scenes. We need one where he's like shooting Michael Myers, and we need a couple where he's like in a car, and then we'll go from there. That's uh, great. Declan, what was your favorite part of this movie? When Annie dies, easily when Annie dies, Annie annoys the hell out of me throughout this entire <laughs> film. To be completely honest, um, she's that typical like typical incompetent best friend in a horror film that like from the from the first thirty seconds of her inner like screen time you knew she was going to be the first to die <laughs> yeah you just knew yes. she was going to be the first to die yes and and like when she calls out the michael myers and like speed and kills and he stops the car like they oh, so like dude, that, that that kicks in how creepy was that too oh like, and like then to, to stop the car sit there for like 13 14 oh, seconds and, and they then, took so oh, long to kill man. her which was genius like she's going in, in that back room to do her laundry you're like okay now They're like no not yet so so yeah, so she has drugs. So like she has a joint. Yep. She gets naked. You you oh, knew dead. she was trying to sleep with a boy. It was all of like the horror film taboos for you will die. Gets and into a, also, gets into a car alone. Yeah. Yep. And also again, this and this is me my my geekiness in me. Her acting, like especially in the beginning, was just hair pulling out bad. Like I was just I was I was ready for her to die. <laughs> And also, like, I'm sorry, if you spill butter on you, you have to physically strip down all of your clothes. Yeah, that seems completely unnecessary. It's it, like, like you just spilled a little butter on you, dude. I agree. I, I thought yeah, your, little, pants, your pants don't have to come off. I thought it was, I thought it was a little <laughs> ridiculous. And also, like, correct me because I'm a 90s baby, but like, is it was it normal back in the day to have detached laundry rooms? Like, was, was that a thing back in the day? I think in some states. Yeah. Okay. 
Because yeah, I thought that was, I, yeah, I thought I that was so that weird that like there was a detached laundry room. I mean, I think it's, yeah. yeah. So yes, my favorite part was when Annie died. Yeah. I love that part. So I, I'm going to play off kind of what, what Declan's talking about here. Actually, you both kind of allude to it. My favorite part of this movie is how <laughs> the original Halloween sets up slasher movie rules. Like it's and now there's and there's there's there were other slasher movies, obviously, like Psycho and mm-hmm. um and uh, Black Christmas is another one that maybe we should review. Black Christmas was from the mid 70s. That's the and it was people, right, Phil. Um, I think actually in reading on Wikipedia, I think this originally was going to be a sequel to Black Christmas. OK, but then it wound up just being its own thing. Uh, and and so Black, Black Christmas was. Margot Kidder was in that movie. She played Lois Lane in the original Superman movies or like the the, uh, Christopher Reeve Superman movies. And it was the first ever uh, call is coming from inside the house theme, which made a lot more sense. Like now it's like, yeah, a call could come from anywhere. Like everyone's got their own mobile device, right? Right. The call's coming from inside the house. Yeah. Judd's in the kitchen. He's on the phone. (laughs) Um, But um, but I so there's there's been other slasher movies leading up to this that have sort of set the tone for rules but this movie really defined things like the slasher is impossible to kill the horny couple always gets murdered uh dead bodies are always stuffed in places where they're going to pop out and scare people there's always one lone survivor uh last night on so amc is running horror movies every single night all month and last night friday the 13th part three was on and i was so i had just gotten done watching halloween and then I turn on Friday the 13th part three, which is from like the mid eighties. And it's literally just like a cornier version of the same formula. It's the horny couple gets murdered. Yep. Uh, there's, there's one lone survivor at the end. That's trying to get away. Jason is impossible to kill just like Michael Myers. And so I just really appreciate how this movie set the parameters for like the next 20 years of slasher movies and the rules you had to follow. The first scream does a magnificent job of guiding you through those too. Yeah. The, the first scream is great, which I absolutely love those. Yeah. But the first one was just great in, in basically saying that if, if you take your clothes off and have sex, you die. I mean, it's yep. just, it's hilarious. <laughs> All right, let's go back to Judd here. Your least favorite part about Halloween. Ooh, I I mean, it's so fast. It's it's yeah. done so quickly. Like, if it dragged on, I'd be like, it went too long. But it didn't go too too long. Um, I guess my least fa- favorite part, and and I have not seen the second one yet, but I think these questions are answered. Is my least fa- favorite part was I did want some questions acknowledged in the first one, which, which weren't. I mean, the the sheriff's daughter dies, and we don't really see him again to re- react to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't. We don't at that time. Now we do in the second one. Subsequently, we don't know what the relationship between Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis's character is. You find out. You find out. But I was going to say, husband. When that no, I'm just fil- kidding. <laughs> when that film. When that film got done, um, I did say to myself, I wonder what those relationships were or what those reactions were. But but in defense of the franchise, they came back in the second one, and I think pretty much picked up where they left off after the first so, one. So, yeah, so quick so, note on that. So the second one, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know what happens in the second Halloween movie, then uh, mute us for a second. But but it, the second one picks up with Jamie Lee Curtis in the hospital just being checked out for, like, her cuts and stuff, and it's just a continuation. Then Michael Myers, like, walks into the hospital, and it's 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 really well done. But what we find out in the second one is that Jamie Lee Curtis is actually Michael Myers' little sister. Yeah. And and the oh. I think John Carpenter, the director of this movie, has said he regrets making that 
editorial decision that it just like it didn't like they I don't think it was originally like part of what was supposed to happen. Um, so that's it's worth watching the second one and maybe we can review it at some point, but you do find mm-hmm. that out. Declan, what was your least favorite part of this movie? A couple. Um, why the, the, all these kids that they're babysitting, why aren't they trick or treating? What's up? What's up with the kids being deprived of trick or treating? And I don't think they're too young either. Like I, I was no. just baffled by the fact of like, these kids are being robbed of like, arguably when you're a kid, especially between the ages of like four and 11, mm-hmm. Halloween is like arguably the second greatest day of the year next to Christmas. Mm-hmm. So, were they out was, earlier? Is it possible they were out when it was light maybe, out, like some of the other kids? But maybe, they weren't. They weren't eating their candy, though. They weren't eating their candy. Also, like, what's like parents just like abandoning their kids on Halloween to go to like an adult themed Halloween night? But like, you have kids. I I don't know. I didn't. I didn't really like that. And then the second thing I didn't like either was, <laughs> and this is just like a horror film nitpick that I have, which is why I don't really like horror films. Is the incompetence of people in horror films? Like, always, <laughs> I can't open a door. How do I open this door? I can't open the like. Are you serious? You can't open the, the doors locked from the other way. Really? You're locked inside your own house. But like, she couldn't find the key. She couldn't find the key. And that one I get. That one makes sense. But like how just the incompetence in horror films. And like why, that part just it, it antagonizes me so much. And why at the end there did Jamie Lee Curtis's character continue to turn her back to a guy who she <laughs> thought she had killed, but then he didn't die the first time. And then she runs upstairs and she's talking to the kids again with her back turned. And then she does go into of all yeah. places, a closet. I feel like, like yeah, to right. It's amazing. But like, so you've already seen, film. you've already seen this guy, like he's taken some punishment. He's walking slowly back at you. And and you also know like he's walking slowly, so of all the things you could go, of all the things you could do, and all the places you could go in that spot, going into a building and then going into a closet in a building would seem like the last place. Like I would probably just run down the street and yeah. just scream and get people to turn their lights and on. She tries but... to send the kids. That's my favorite. <laughs> she tries to send the kids run down the street and call the cops. No, why don't you get out of the house? And actually, so uh, my least favorite thing in this movie. Is and, and and I'll read you an explanation from uh, I think it was Newsweek.com did like a full dive into some of the questions about Halloween, but it didn't make sense to me until reading this why Michael Myers was so hell bent on killing James. So again, at the time of this movie, I don't think it was determined that Jamie Lee Curtis was Michael Myers' sister. I think at the time of this movie, she was just a babysitter. And she was the daughter of the real estate agent that was trying to sell the condemned house that Michael Myers lived in as a kid. That was the beginning of the movie. And so like the whole time it's like, all right, so he comes back to his hometown and he visits his old house that's been abandoned for 15 years. And then he just decides that like Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends are the ones that he's going to kill and stalk. Like what's the backstory? Mm -hmm. So um, and I, and by the way, even before reading this explanation, still, it's still like, all right, whatever. All right, there's a simple explanation for what motivates Michael Myers that closely follows slasher movie logic in which the killer is often motivated by a combination of neglect and sexual jealousy. Just like Jason Voorhees introduced in the Friday the 13th series three years after Halloween, Michael was supposed to be under supervision as a kid, not from camp counselors in the case of Jason Voorhees, but from his babysitting sister. So he's supposed to be under supervision by his babysitting sister. Could his sister neglecting him in favor of the boyfriend be the reason why he would stalk teen babysitters like Jamie Lee Curtis? But part of the power of Halloween is that it's not reducible to simple, vicious motivations from other 80s slashers. Michael Myers has a strong compulsion to return to his hometown, but he doesn't immediately look for victims. Instead, he returns home. 
And this is where the uh, where he encounters Jamie Lee Curtis, who drops the key to the mail slot, if you remember, while he was standing behind the window. And so um, he chillingly just decided because he saw her drop the key off that she has been chosen completely at random to be stalked and terrorized. And I don't know if I it just, it just seems like why wouldn't he just like it feels like he should have more motivation for who he's picking. And that's the only thing that really bothered me. But. That's okay. What other things stood out to you guys? Actually, we should talk about Michael Myers. Let's do a Michael Myers deep dive here. Okay. What did you guys think of Michael Myers as a horror movie villain? Well, I thought he was effective, but I mean, it was more the... I I thought the most effective thing about the film was the theater of the mind of, of the fact that you really didn't know him or you didn't like... Like, he's not he's not a bad guy who who you sort of see in action early and you're like, okay, that's the bad guy it's this crazy guy who comes back to the town i thought it was i thought what they what they left you with for the majority of that film as a viewer was really really smart because again it was all about the anticipation of what he was going to do what he actually did horror film wise there's six kills guys there's only six kills in the entire film it's not that bad but just the anticipation of those six kills is huge. So I thought the idea of how they wrote the character was actually really, really smart. And I would argue that that subsequent horror films probably went too far and overcorrected the other way of slasher films. I I almost like the the fact that it's a slasher film, but it's really not. Um, the only problem with this is, just as far as a scouting report goes, Michael Myers is a stabber, not a slasher. So, like, he doesn't really slash well. Like, he doesn't do the kill well. He's a lot of this. Boom, boom, boom. His mechanics are bad. His mechanics are awful. (laughs) Yeah. I would consider him to be, I would consider him to be probably a quad A slasher. He's like one of those golfers with, like, a homemade swing. But, but, (laughs) but to be very clear, he's, he's. Jamie Moyer or Tewksbury like as far as the stuff. He's a crafty sure. slasher. Durable. He's, he's gonna give you he's gonna give you innings too. Yeah. You just, yeah, you're not just gonna take him out of the game. But he's basically a stabber. It's like, no, dude, use the slash motion. Yeah. It's like, is is your knife dull or something? I think what I don't really get about Michael Myers is uh I, like there's just randomly murderous, psychopathic six year old kids running around just yeah. like killing their family members. That's a Michael. thing. <laughs> Like, like Michael, and I love his parents. Yeah, what did you do? Oh, you killed your sister. <laughs> no dinner for you tonight. Yeah, it's like he's never get him. It's not really addressed. Like, his parents are like, "Wow, you killed your sister." Okay, here's my biggest Michael Myers question for you guys, and it's actually I don't know if I would say it's one of my least favorite things in the movie, but it's definitely like, and it's a it's a loophole that needs to be closed. So he kills his sister when he's six years old, and then he gets sent to basically a mental asylum slash prison for the next 15 years of his life, right? Yeah, yeah. And Dr. Loomis, in talking to the nurse about sort of the 15-year timeline, said, I spent seven years trying to get through to him and connect with him, but then I realized there was nothing behind the cold stare. There was just vacancy, and he's just a ruthless, evil murderer. And then I spent the next eight years trying to make sure that he stays locked up. So presumably, he's six years old, and then for 15 years, he's locked up. And he knows how to drive. Yeah. How does Michael Myers know how to drive? Answer that question for me. I don't know that he drives. He's, dri- well. he's driving he around well. I thought he drove pretty darn well. He's he's I don't able know to he drives well. I mean, he might have killed that was the, a, that the was, car at one point. It that just was stopped. presumably that was his first time ever sitting behind the wheel of a car. 
Well, and the even first the, 30 minutes of the I mean, movie. he doesn't die, too, dude. So he's got a lot going for him. And, and even the therapist says, like, well, I say they're not to drive a car. He's probably going to get it last night. Like, yeah. he was, like, I don't know why he's old-time movie now, guy. That's, I don't know why I did that voice. Everybody. Yeah. Michael Byers, you're not alone. You're not alone. He's, he's, he's not the driving a car. He talked um, talk like this. Yeah. I think I might kill people, too. Well, you guys, like, you guys remember the first time you ever sat behind the wheel of a car? It was oh, yeah. probably kind terrifying. of a disaster, right? Yeah, it was, pretty, it was terrifying. That was, was pretty good. How is he? And, he, and, it, and it sounds like he's not exactly uh, he's not exactly an Einstein here, okay? How does he know how to drive a car so effectively? I just don't. I don't get it. Yeah, I didn't get that part either. Um, also, just like what I didn't, and like obviously he's almost like this invincible figure. So that's what I also don't get. Like, all right, so Jamie Lee Curtis first stabs him with one of those, you know, knitting pick things. I don't even know what the actual yeah. technical term is. So she kind of like disposes them quickly. And I'm thinking like, really? I'm like that was all it took. He's like, yeah. now he's down. Then he gets back up. And you're like, oh, okay. Like he's not down. Then she's like able to coat hang him. And then stab him, and you're like, oh, okay, again, the teenager, like, easily disposed of this crazy killing machine, Mm-mm. gets back up again. The dude takes like six bullets in the chest, falls, falls over that railing, and then he disappears. But it's just like, I was a little confused on the part of, all right, this dude. <laughs> oh, but, by the way, too, by the way, Bravo, one of the few actual songs used in the film. Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult was yes. a genius move. That's, that's, great yeah. song. It's good. Great song. Great timing. Loved it. Yep. Yeah. So, so I just thought it was a little weird that like he's this invincible figure, but also at the same time, Jamie Lee Curtis, like I, I know she gets cut and she like falls down those stairs pretty good. But outside of that, it seemed like she won the battle against him for the most like if you were looking at a boxing ring, like she won the battle. Yeah, she got more shots in for sure. Like yeah. he stabbed her a couple of times, but the problem is He's got the endurance. He's impossible to kill. Uh, I think at one, at one point, I think we had. Uh, did we ever have a Michael Myers versus Jason? No, we had a Freddy versus Jason yeah, movie. Freddy versus Jason. I've seen that. It'd be one. fun to put those guys all in a Royal Rumble. Um, let me ask you guys. Though, let's get to some key questions here. Okay, how would you personally handle a situation like this if you were ever in Jamie Lee Curtis's shoes mm-hmm. and you had what appeared to be some sort of monstrous stalker with a knife slowly pursuing you? How what would, would you I, guys do? How would I? I would have, uh, after I thought I killed him the first time, one, I, I wouldn't have just turned my back. I would have been much more cognizant of his whereabouts because to Dex's point, I mean, you stabbed him with like a, what, like a straight edged uh, that's not, didn't look like it would kill a person. But the other thing I would do is I'm downstairs. Why wouldn't you run out the front door? I would run out the front door. I would probably. And by the way, too, um, part two of of that is if I was babysitting, I probably wouldn't have left the kids alone for substantial periods of time, which which when it gets to be its most intense, she basically just does. Like she's just like, peace out, kids. Take care of yourself. So everyone's on the road. I would have gone. I would have gone out the front door. I would not have run up the stairs here's the thing like the other the other part of this that obviously doesn't translate to 2020 so michael myers cut the phone lines right so when 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 i sense okay i've been being stalked all day the phone lines are cut something is seriously wrong i am now going to any house i know she banged on a couple doors but like what i'm doing is i'm going to any nearby house and asking pleading begging to use their phone to call the police and i don't feel like she explored all those options like she banged on a couple of doors, got ignored, and then just like went. And back that to one her own place house. turned their lights off and closed the shades. I I thought that th- this was a a tight knit community. No, 
No, apparently not. Haddonfield, uh, Illinois. Very, very. Creepy. I did love. I did love guys. The the in the, the midst of all of of basically suburbia and you know houses that look nice. I did love that for fifteen years. This one house just abandoned. Yes, yeah. and just it's like it's like Edina. Ah, uh, you know what though? This one house there was a killing there a long time ago, and no one lives there now, and it's really creepy. It's like what. Like, were the bloodstains even cleaned off the floor in the bedroom? Probably not. And the parents, again, I will reiterate, in 1963, did not seem that upset their daughter was dead. No, maybe she was <laughs> an, Maybe she was annoying. I don't know. Michael, what did you do? You killed your sister? Let's go in and get some dominoes. They're like, oh, man, don't have to pay for her college. Woof, thank God. Mommy and daddy just saved a hundred grand. Um, what's the most freaked out you guys have ever been watching a movie? Mm. Uh, I-, I saw... Um... And it, it, it's laughable. I was actually talking to a friend about this last time after I finished watching Halloween. I, I was terrified of uh, Paranormal Activity when it first came out. Dude, that's my answer. Yes, because 100%. like that, that, like I'm more I'm more freaked out of like actual things that can happen. Yeah, dude, and like a hundred percent. Paranormal oh, Activity is Ugh. like actually something that could happen. So that I one mean, always not, freaks me out. Not really. Well, maybe. Maybe I, I I'm a big I'm a big believer in ghosts. And I'm also like, that's why I also signs like the movie signs with Mel Gibson, like aliens and ghosts. I actually believe are real. Dude, those ones freak me out. There's a scene. You just brought up like my two examples, like (laughs) literally literally the two times I've been the most freaked out in a movie. Uh, I'll start with signs. I watched that movie in theaters and I was watching it with I think it was like my mom, stepdad and maybe my cousin or something. It was like a a family uh, movie going. And there's a scene in Signs where you see an alien for the first time. It's like they're showing CNN coverage of like what's happening. And all of a sudden you see an alien walk across the screen and stare into the camera. And it was like the entire movie theater let out a gasp like, oh, my God, paranormal activity. That's another one of those movies I saw for the first time at 10 o'clock at the old St. Anthony (laughs) Main Theater, downtown Minneapolis. And there's a scene. Um. It might have been like the third one or second one. It was one of the oh, sequels. Yeah. I've seen the first. And two. Judd, have you ever seen a paranormal activity movie? Mm-mm. What's your What's your level of of desire to watch horror movies? Is it not high? Pretty not low. High. Okay. Yeah, very low. So I feel like once you get on this train, it's it's hard to stop. So paranormal activity is essentially like a hand recorded movie series, and 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 you you watch these movies through the through the lens of like the security cameras that the families put up because weird things are happening in their house or because they want to track like their sure. kids or whatever. Sure. And then throughout the course of the movie, they, they discover like these weird things keep happening, happening, happening. And then it just like culminates toward the end. And there's a scene in one of these paranormal activity movies where the, there's a babysitter watching the two kids mm-hmm. and she's sitting at the kitchen counter doing homework with her back to the living room space. It's like an open floor plan. And the way they film this is unbelievable. There's no music, nothing. It's just straight anticipation, just like you're talking about Halloween. And the camera, the dad had mounted a camera on a rotating oscillating fan. He took the fan off, but left the oscillating part on. And so, so the entire scene is just like Mm -hmm. this oscillating fan showing you the kitchen. And then it slowly pans over to the living room and the entryway. And then it slowly pans back. And over the course of like five minutes, you see the babysitter sitting at the table mm-hmm. and then it pans back and then it pans back and she's still sitting there. And you're just waiting like what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden it pans back again and you see a ghost like figure with like a bed sheet standing behind her. But it's like a it's like a, a little kid sized person. 
And um, it's like one of the creepiest. And then all of a sudden, Ugh. the sheet gives way, and the babysitter finally turns around. But it's like the sus- the suspense in paranormal activity Ooh. movies is so amazing. And I remember, what- huh? I, I mean, is is this supposed to be real or just no? It's fictional? I mean, they're no, no, it's, it's all man made, it, fake. Okay. Yeah, it's fake. But but I remember walking to my car after seeing this movie solo at like it's like midnight after the movie's over. <laughs> Santhi Maine. And I've never been more terrified to just like walk to my car in the <sighs> damp, cold weather. So, Judd, what's the most terrified you've ever been watching? I'm, a big, I'm not a big horror movie guy, so I don't know that there is one. The worst I've seen that got kudos and people loved it, Blair Witch Project. Yeah. I actually went to the theater to see that piece of garbage. It was awful. <laughs> yeah, I wanted everyone. Good. I wanted everyone to die. It was just, <laughs> I kept, I'm, I'm like, are you, I'm, I'm not going to buy this. Yeah. Um, my mom took me to uh, some type of Disney film or some type of weird film when I was a kid that had like, it turned out to be scary. And I remember I had nightmares though. And I don't know what the film was, but it, it was like the basis was the devil was coming for people or something. It was very, a very Disney movie. It, it wasn't Disney, but it was supposed to be, it was not supposed to be what, or she was surprised and thought it would be, it would be fun. And it wasn't. Was it the land? Was it the land before time? I don't know what it was, but it, I had nightmares. I was probably six or seven. I had nightmares for like a week. After so you, that. so you that basically sucks. just like, so you don't want, you basically had never seen horror movies then. Like I've seen some, but I mean, I don't, Go, I don't purposely go watch them. Okay. I if I come across them on cable, I will. It just depends. But Blair Witch, Blair Witch is the definition of why I don't like them because it's like people like this and I think it's garbage. Yeah. Well, uh, if there's any other fellow horror movie nerds out there and you wanna you wanna trade some some suggestions, oh. hit me up on Twitter at Phil Mackey. I would be I'd be happy to trade some. Can I tell you guys that I think I also think that there was another movie franchise that took a page from halloween the original in a very small way and i think spun a very successful franchise and it's Mm. the final destination series and Mm. here's why there is a seed in early in halloween where a character uh where they're talking about fate and 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 basically um they say that fate never changes Something changes. I forget the exact line, but fate doesn't. And it's the exact basis for what Final Destination is based on. Okay. Like, like it is totally based on that, which is, which is if you escape your fate, you will suffer your fate eventually. Interesting. I, I think, because, I mean, this film for, for young people who got into the business eventually had to be groundbreaking, right? Like there's a lot of things about this film that are probably very small, but they're genius. Yeah. And I think that line might have launched the idea for people who escape their fate never really do. They just suffer it in a different way. Ooh, Ooh. Chilling. Jeez. And, and it's chilling. just one line. It's just one it. line. Right? I love it. I love it. Um, I've got some other facts from like Wikipedia here that I want to There's some great ones here. There's some fantastic yeah. ones. Go ahead. So the cast of Halloween included veteran actor Donald Pleasance and then unknown actress at the time, Jamie Lee Curtis. The low budget limited the number of big names that John Carpenter could attract, and most of the actors received little compensation for their roles. Donald Pleasance was paid the highest amount at $20,000. Jamie Lee Curtis got only $8,000 for this movie, and Nick Castle, who plays Michael Myers uh, behind the mask, earned $25 per day for his <laughs> efforts. So congrats. You played one of the biggest uh, villainous movie stars ever, and you got 25 bucks a day. How about this one? 
Michael Myers mask was actually a William Shatner mask from Star Trek that filmmakers painted fish belly white. The prop team found wow. two pot- they found two potential masks for uh, for John Carpenter. One was a smiling clown mask with frizzy red hair, oh. which would link back to how Michael killed his sister in the prologue. The other was a William Shatner mask, which cost the crew around one dollar. Although they originally settled on the clown mask, the crew later realized the emotionless Shatner mask was a lot scarier. Your thoughts on that? Was the emotionless William Shatner mask the right choice, or would you have gone with the clown mask? For this film, I think they made the right choice. Yeah. For this film, I think, because this whole film was about just being creepy and spooky, but it wasn't about, I didn't feel like this film was going for, and I credit them for this, they weren't going for the splash. They were going for, so I think that they did, for them, ultimately, the right thing. Yeah. Uh, The idea for the character of Michael Myers came to John Carpenter when he was in college. He went on a tour of a psychiatric hospital and saw that one of the patients was a little boy. When he met the boy, the boy just stared at him coldly with a look of evil in his eye. Really? Carpenter Carpenter was terrified by this child, and Michael Myers was born conceptually. That's genius. That's insane. It makes me like it even more. How creepy is that? That's terrifying. Is there anything creepier than just like chillingly creepy kids in some (laughs) of these movies? The the doctor's line, though, about there was nothing but the devil and evil Mm -hmm. behind those eyes was a great line. Yes. Like there there was some really scary dialogue that had nothing to do with things that you eventually saw. Okay, here's one more for you guys. And you want to talk about the difference in how popular this movie and franchise became versus how unsuccessful it probably would have been if they would have gone with the original title. So the original title for this movie was the babysitter murders. Hmm. And now that like, I'm sure that would have been a cult classic horror movie. Right. But to, but to name it Halloween and to have that association. And those kids didn't babysit anybody. They were the most delinquent babysitters of all time mm, I'm, glad they got, they cha- I'm glad they changed it they had to die they, they got naked they had to die they had to die. <laughs> don't get naked kids you will die that's right um should we get to our definitive bad guy rankings here oh, hold you on guys a have second. any other quick thoughts hold on a second i've got two more sure so J- jamie lee and, and her husband i think in 1986 and 96 adopted kids boy and a, a girl who they named annie and thomas no so way. So their real life kids are named after the kids in the film. Dude, that's creepy. The other thing super I like, creepy. I like that. is the little girl. If you recognize her, she is in in a real housewives, I think of <laughs> Beverly Hills. Her last name is Richards. Her sister well, acted too. Denise Richards? Denise? I think so, yeah. Denise Richards? Or no, 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 no. It's not it's not no, no, no. No, no, it's a different Richards. But her real Hold on, let's find this. Let's find yeah. this. But she is the kid. The little girl is on or, or has been on a real housewives. It's not Hold on a second. Let's incredible. see here. Oh Kyle, oh Kyle Richards. Oh my yes. god. That's the little girl. I, I watch. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. That's the little girl. And <laughs> really? Kim, and Kim Kim, I believe, who, who was also in it and who I think is off a rocker. That's her sister. Amazing. All right. Yeah. Awesome. God dang it. 
There's wow. a lot of great tie-ins here. Wow. All right. Uh, definitive bad guy rankings. And even though this this genre deviates a little bit from mm. our action movie genre, I still think we should lump in sure. the rankings and everything together here. So our definitive bad guy rankings to this point, Hans Gruber is number one from Die Hard. Cyrus the Virus from Con Air is number two. Brad Wesley from Roadhouse. Cobra Kai from Karate Kid. And Mr. Joshua from Lethal Weapon. At the bottom of our rankings, we've done 30 movies so far. The incompetent Russian military from Rambo 3, the muggers from Death Wish, the French drug lord from Bad Boys, uh, Gans and Billy Bear from 48 Hours, and Sloan from Wanted. Let's start to put the uh, Michael Myers character mm. into context here. He's got, I think he's got to be pretty high up. Yeah, he has to be. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't not put him high up. Um, All right, here's the question. Let's just go through. Let's just go through. Hans Gruber is iconic. Hans yes. Gruber is charismatic. Yes. Um, Cyrus the virus from I think I honestly think he's in this ballpark. I think he's in the Hans Gruber Cyrus the virus he, ballpark. I he's think top. he's above Brad Wesley. Yeah. So I third. So. so third. What do you guys think? Is is it worth discussing putting him above Hans Gruber? Here's my question. Um, no, I think Hans is the best. Yeah, uh, I think it's worth discussing putting him second. Wow. It's a complete. I mean, it- I think you're right, dude. I think. I mean, he's more iconic than Cyrus the Virus. I sure. think the the maybe the thing that holds him back, and it's not really holds him back. It's how we define charismatic. Like, like is that holding him back from being number ten? I actually think like he's because char- he, he's iconic is there. Like, obviously he's an icon, mm-hmm. but like the charismatic is it, does that exist with him, or do we have to interpret it differently because he's a slasher? I actually think he is kind of charismatic because, like, you know, think even though he doesn't really talk, you know, he puts on different masks. He put on a, you know, the the one time where he puts on the bed sheet to kill the one woman. I mean, and don't forget, he killed creativity. He killed at six of his sister. He killed her at six. Um, Here's why I would say he's second. We know for a fact in retrospect that if you put Babe Ruth in today's game, that he would be, he'd be good still, but he, but he wouldn't be Babe Ruth, right? Right. Sure. Um, this is Babe Ruth, so I think we have to pay homage to him because he is Babe Ruth. Like yeah. he is, he's iconic. He he goes beyond iconic in the sense that he started a trend. Like it, Jason Voorhees wore a mask. Um, I think he's second. I think it's very fair to we'll pay. Put him second. I think it's very fair to pay tribute to what was done here and acknowledge that he is the Babe Ruth of what we're doing. Awesome. All right, now we get to our overall 1 through 10 rankings here. So uh, Die Hard is the only perfect 10 that we have reviewed to this point. Taken at a 9.5. John Wick, Commando, both above a 9. At the bottom, the worst movies we have reviewed are Shoot 'Em Up at a 2.8. Bloodsport, a 3. Max, uh, Mad Max 2 at a 3.7. Wanted is a 3.8. And Rambo 3 is a 4. Uh, of those five, those five have all been selected by either me or Declan. So <laughs> shoot us if you if you must. All right. Uh, one through ten scale. Judd Zolgad. I got to give this a ten. I, I have to. Like, if you take into account when it was done, what it established, um, uh, the, fact, the fact that the idea and the writing to a large degree has aged really well, I think. I'm going to have to I think to give it less than a 10 would be would uh, be to not acknowledge what it meant. And the fact that it has, in my opinion, aged well, I'll, I'll just go with a 10. Uh, Dex might be too high, but it, it is very difficult to not give this a 10. 
I, 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 I have, I thought about it last night. I think initially I wrote down eight and a half. Like that was my just gut, like immediate reaction. Cause I like to take notes during the film. And I said, I think it's an eight and a half. The incompetence in horror films. Like to me, that kind of holds it back. But that's, I mean, but that's, sort of, it, that's like, that's purposeful. That's, that's, that's purposeful. part of it. Right. So that's part of it. So retooling it after a night of sleep, it's a 10. Wow. It's I a mean, 10 they, out of 10. They had six total kills in the entire film and it was oh. genius. Wow. Yes. Um, wow. A lot of pressure on me right now. Um, it's a 10. It's a 10. It's a 10. It's a 10. It's gotta be a 10. It's gotta be a 10. Yeah. It's gotta be. It's a 10. And I think the, like the biggest reason why I would give it a 10 in, in, you know, in addition to just like the iconic nature of the film, it's one of those movies. And I would put Die Hard in this. I would put now that I've seen Taken, which is our third ranked movie. It's one of those specifically with the two movies we've given a 10 though to Die Hard and Halloween. If I have nothing to do and I'm flipping around, I am all in. Like if I join that movie at the beginning, if I join the movie in the middle, it's one of those movies that I just like have to stop on every single time. And uh, that's that's part of my logic. So. Boys, congrats. We just gave our second perfect 10 in action movie rewind. Die Hard and Halloween <laughs> sitting strong. Um, and so here's what we're going to do now. We get we get so many suggestions from listeners, and we got a bunch more last night. If you ever have action movie rewind suggestions for us that we should uh, add to the list here, tweet them at me, at Phil Mackey, and I will just compile a list. So going forward, because we want to incorporate – you guys, the listeners uh, and our social media followers into the selection process, all three of us are going to bring a movie to the table every single week. And then we'll also bring in a listener suggestion and we'll put all four of those up for vote on my Twitter account. All right. So, so what we have to do right now, the three of us is, uh, and what I'll do is I'll either just like select my own or I'll select one from a listener or both because I've got a, sort of like a combined list here. Sure. So why don't you guys let's 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 throw out movies here. I'll compile a list and then I'll put a Twitter poll up this weekend and we can go from there. So, Judd, what movie are you nominating? One that we've been threatening to do for a long time and have not done yet. And eventually I think we have to do it. Beverly Hills Cop. Ah, uh, all right. Declan. Uh, I'm going to go with one of my favorites from 2001 and it's, it's, it's an action film. Cause I, cause the genres on Wikipedia and, uh, and Rotten Tomatoes confirmed it, but a knight's tale in 2001 with Heath Ledger. Knight's tale. Yeah. A knight's tale. I, I actually love Heath Ledger. I think he, Heath Ledger had a hell of a run there yes, in he the did. late nineties, early two thousands. And if we ever got a chance to do 10 things I hate about you and it was just <laughs> me monologuing, like bring it. Um, I'm going to go, all right, we're going to go for my selection. I don't think this is going to get picked, but I'm going to put it on here anyways. Have you guys ever heard of the Hulk Hogan movie from the late 1980s called No Holds Barred? I, yes, I have. Sure, I have. I don't it's, like, it's like a super core, like Hulk Hogan was like an action star for a couple of years. And, um, and then they turned it into an actual like wrestling match later on. And then the, the movie I'm going to nominate on behalf of the fans is true lies zach h recommended arnold schwarzenegger classic mm. from the 90s true lies is in here Love and it. so those are going to be the four that we put up for vote and by the way like let's say let's say uh beverly hills cop doesn't get selected judd you can keep going back to that well as often as you want and put it up for yep. for vote here so uh beverly hills cop a knight's tale no holds barred and true lies from our friend zach h on twitter will be the ones that we choose from and uh, just keep an eye on ad Phil Mackey on Twitter. And you'll be able to see if you like to watch these movies and follow along with us, then you can do that 
and uh, we'll do it next Friday. So, all right, um, quick pause, and then we will wrap with our friend Patrick Royce and talk about the White Sox managerial hire yesterday. What the hell? Yeah, we wrap with Royce. We we haven't been able to this week because we we've been quarantined and doing the show from home. And Judd, Judd and I are like day three waiting for our COVID test. So fingers crossed. But we breaking news. We got Patrick Royce into our video uh, chat here. And so we're going to wrap with Royce 2020 style selfie video, Pat. Welcome to the future. Uh, yes, sir. It's uh, it's it's phenomenal. I was just telling you guys off the air. I grew up with one TV station in uh, Fulda, Minnesota, K-E-L-O, and we called it Kello Land, baby. And we've come a long way since Kello Land, I want to tell you. And you know what, Pat? So have the White Sox. They have come a long way. (laughs) Tony LaRussa, 76 years old, is back in the dugout. Look for the resignation of Rob Hahn soon, although he's put together such a promising young club. Maybe he won't leave, but uh, can you imagine? how long and hard he fought with Reinsdorf to get him off this LaRusso thing. The idea that there was a decision that these three, that these three people came to is complete BS. Reinsdorf at 84 is still a tyrant. And uh, he told them they had to hire LaRusso. You know, damn well, LaRusso called up. LaRusso saw that team and, uh, and said, you know, he called him up and Jer wants to, this is like Polad making Tom Kelly take Ralph Hauk, but that was as an advisor, not as the manager. <laughs> and I'll tell you one thing, uh, what is Tony, 76 or 76? 70, 76. 76. The ego's, the ego's still young, I can tell you that, because he was <laughs> a raving egomaniac, and I'm sure he's still got that going for him. I actually made fun of him. Uh, you, I know you find that hard to believe about his ego in, uh, was it 83, 84? I'm not sure when. And uh, he got a hold of me up in the press box and asked to meet me before the game. And we sat up in the stands and talked uh, before the game because he was so offended that some guy from the St. Paul paper then uh, had accused him of being an egomaniac. He was, he had a... Uh, <laughs> To prove it, he had to have a discussion with me before the game. He's, uh, you know what he really got on my nerves when he was uh, uh, getting beat in that World Series against the Dodgers. And his, his, his daughters were in some kind of a dance club thing. And he kept showing up for the press conferences in a t-shirt from their dance club to show us what a hip guy he was, <laughs> you know, instead of showing up like a manager should in a, in a managerial uniform, he'd show up for the post-game interviews in this t-shirt advertising. I don't know if it was dance or what, what it was. It was some, it wasn't sports. I know that. So Patrick, the first game, so the first game that he managed against the twins at Met stadium, September of 1979, Bombo Rivera, Dave Edwards, and Willie Norwood were the outfielders. Just to put this into context of this guy, this guy got his first managerial job two plus years before Rocco Baldelli was born. I mean, <laughs> this is Connie Mack like. I'll give you another yeah, one. So, who, he, uh, so he he managed Don Kessinger in 1979. Don Kessinger's major league career started in the early 60s. Yeah. He replaced Don <laughs> Kessinger. That's who, who he replaced to? Who is that who he replaced? I was going to ask. Was it? Okay. 
Kessinger. I can't even remember Kessinger, man. He's in the White Sox. It was so player long. manager, Pat. Okay, interesting. Huh? He he played too. What? Kessinger Kessinger was a player manager for the White Sox. He got blown out. I believe it was August third, nineteen seventy nine. Larusa was brought up, I think, from the Iowa Oaks, which was the AAA team of the White Sox at the time, to manage them. That must have been the time about that Beck was selling too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Beck was a couple years you know, after, right? A couple there years in the after 70s, that, early eighties. But uh, well, Beck could do some strange things. The guy who fired him was Ken Harrelson. Yeah, and Reinsdorf was. You know, I guess that's pretty good to be on your resume that the Hawk fired you because he was one of the worst general managers of all time. But <laughs> Reinsdorf said he's regretted that ever since he allowed Hawk to fire him. Uh, so, 14. You won a World Series with Ozzy. You still were regretted firing LaRusso then? They were going to bring somebody back. Bring back Ozzy. Yeah. He loved Ozzy. Yeah. It's amazing, man. I mean, I, I think... Um... I think Tony LaRusso has sort of said all the right things. He has come out and he has said, listen, um, you know, I'm still like energy enough to do this and whatnot, but ultimately I don't know how, I don't know how he's going to react when Tim Anderson hits a 500 foot home run, flips <laughs> his bat, does a crotch chop to the opposing pitcher and then has to walk in and face Tony LaRusso. So it'll Actually, be interesting. Even though their personalities were 180 degrees different, I think Kelly actually respected him as a manager. As an opponent, you know, as a, the way he ran a team and things like that. But where did he just get blown out as a special Arizona? Well, Arizona. he was with the, was it the Angels because he was with Arizona for a while too. Yeah, ever, I think he got fired there, and then the Angels, I think, didn't blow him out, but gave him the ability to talk to the White Sox about this job. So, how about the Tigers? The Tigers, because of this, they're going to end up getting the guy everybody wanted, AJ Hinch. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. It. And I suppose the baseball doesn't have the guts to call up the poor Wobie gone Tigers and uh, say you can't do this. You know, let's let the Tigers do whatever they want to to try to get twelve people back in the ballpark. Here's the other the other funny thing that happened yesterday. So, if if anyone is wondering, well, did the White Sox consider like how far did they get with AJ Hinch? The White Sox on the email blast that they sent out to. I think it was media and fans saying, "Hey, Tony Larusa is hired." With the photo of Tony Larusa. Cool. They had a signature. It was like it was like a graphic that was supposed to be Tony Larusa and then Tony Larusa's signature, and the signature was AJ Hinch in the, in the email. There's some PR guy that's no longer employed, right? Is that right? Yes, and then and then they fixed it for the social media graphic, but somebody screenshotted it in an email. Oh my god, that's fantastic! So I they must have, they must have had some discussions with AJ Hinch. I'm assuming. Oh well, that was. What I was hearing was that it was going to be Cora or Hinch. Yeah, yeah. You know, Cora would have been good too. Who's what are the Red Sox waiting for? See, <laughs> see if Dave Roberts gets fired. He I wonder. Fired. I wonder if Cora now. I wonder if Cora's got that job, Pat. Who? Cora just bring, if he's going to go back. back. Yeah, they're just, just waiting for the time yeah. to break it. I yeah, don't know. It's it, weird. exactly. Here's my question. Where's yeah. TK? TK is a spry young 70-year-old man. No. Larusa 76. Him up TK. If he's got the urge again, he'd blow that off in two seconds. <laughs> That's a great busy. column, though. It's a great column. He, he's too busy snowballing, uh, you know, uh, snow plowing his neighbor's driveway driveways in Maplewood. He's you call Jack Maplewood. Morris? You call TK? See, Pat, that's the thing. You've got all these guys. You can call them. What do you think? 
DK. Yeah, I'll probably have to get Actually, the, I'm glad you brought the Jack Morris thing up because this is the first time that we've talked to Pat on this show this week. So what is this? Listen, and you guys know I am Mr. Analytics. I am Mr. Lean on the Stats. But Rocco Baldelli, Kevin Cash, you've got stud first-round caliber blue-chip starting pitchers. Five innings, five and a third. They're pitching their asses off. They're only at 70 pitches in this, like, knee-jerk need, like, waiting for one single up the middle to pull them out of the game. Like, I, I, as an analytics guy, Pat, I'm sitting here thinking, what the hell are you guys? Like, use your brains. You are a manager. You are not a spreadsheet that is programmed into the dugout. So well, you called Jack Morris during this. Well, here's the deal. I mean, I'm not going to be one of these guys that say you can't do that with your starter if he's struggling. But Snell was throwing – Snell was unbelievable He was because he had all four pitches. And, he, you know, he'd lost a couple of miles on his fastball. Okay, but that with all that other stuff that he was throwing, he was just – I mean, he had that look in his eye, didn't he? Just like Barrios. Yes. The thing that really bothered me about Barrios was We've been waiting since 18 for him to be a stud down the stretch or in a in a big game. And now he gives you five great innings. It should have been a no-hitter. Each of the hits was cheap. And you go over and tell him, that's enough. I don't trust you. I want to bring in Cody Stasiak. That was God. idiotic. <laughs> and then this was even worse. This was incredible. To bring in poor Nick Anderson, who obviously, whatever he was using to get hitters he had an old five five era during the regular season but whatever he was using then was not working against these good hitters you see in the postseason because they were hitting rockets and he he ended up getting scored on his last seven appearances i i just it made no sense and i'm sure that you know john smoltz went off on him pretty good and not because he's at that old school either because i thought smoltz had the greatest quote he says when the other, te- you probably made a mistake when the other team is happy that you took a pitcher out of the yes. game, and these guys are happy. I can guarantee you. And Mookie pretty much said that after the game. He said, "You know, he didn't. He didn't laugh, but he said uh, I was. It was I was willing not to face him a third time because so, <laughs> he struck him out easy twice. So mm-hmm. the top of the batting order, six for six. Hey Pat, struck, you- struck him out all. Struck Do out you- all. Do you do you think that what happened in that game will cause some sort of correction a little bit to going back towards common sense playing a role? I'm not saying it's going to change things dramatically, but to me, if if people don't learn from that move, they're never going to learn. Well, and I, I think it's just unsust- not sustainable to because now you're going to be back. You're going to be back to bullpens of you know the thing about the. World Series is they had, what, 12 pitchers if they wanted them in the bullpen, right? I mean, they had 10. You're going to be back to eight relievers max. And I just don't think if you, if you let one, if you let a starter, if you're not going to let any starters go through the batting orders three times, it it doesn't work. It's not, you're going to wear out the bullpen. He had his bullpen worn out and he had extra arms. for the for the postseason, so uh, I don't know. I want to. I, I want let's. Snell's not going to go nine, but let him go seven, and then try to get to the finish line, right? Yes, one hundred percent. Also, like if you if you simplify it, and this is where like people who say see analytics are winning baseball. No, I mean a- no, they're not. 
it's it, I mean, it's it's ruining like pace of play and things like that. And yeah. I agree with that. But it's the reason why the like information gathering and analytics are the reason why the Rays are even in that game six. But then what bothers me is you get into a spot and and you're five or six innings into this game and you have a choice between a like a bona fide first round pick, a guy who was a Cy Young Award winner who had an ERA of one and a half two years ago, or a reclamation project that you've you've definitely like built into this good reliever, but he's never been in a spot like this. And it's like Cody Stashak and Matt Whistler and Nick Anderson. It's great that these teams can turn these guys into great relievers, but when it comes down to World Series on the line and Mookie Betts is at the plate, I'll take the bona fide stud guy who has a Cy Young Award in his back pocket. He should have talked to the manager of the Twin City Shark, uh, the Tri-City Shark. Because uh, when Nick was at the end of a fantastic year with the Tri-City Shark, they started him in the game. They started him in a game against uh, the the elimination. They had to win this game to advance to the state tournament. And Nick gave up eight runs that day. He was wild. He couldn't throw any strikes. Now, yeah. he, now the legend is he was pretty hungover. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I mean, you know, and Nick, you know, then. Nick faltered that time, and maybe, yeah, maybe that's yeah. Still what happened. No, I don't know. It's just here. You know, I got to go back to Brio's game because my big problem then was how are you going to get to the finish line now? You know, how are you going to get to the finish line? Same thing with Maeda. If you take him out now, you're going to have to use Sergio Romo to get to the finish line. And sorry. That act has run out of steam by the end of the season. The, uh, you know, 50, uh, 55 out of 56 pitches being sliders. It, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking the same thing for this guy. If you're going to get to the finish line, you got to use Aaron Loop, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I got my choice between Blake Snell and Aaron Loop. Yeah, and, and Pat, the, the other thing we talked about, too, is like, and this is this is what a manager is supposed to be able to decipher. It's the things that you don't see in the stats. Yes. They, these guys, Kevin Cash and Rocco Baldelli, are guilty of assuming that all of these pitchers are going to perform and their heart rate is going to be the exact same in the middle of May as it would be in game six of the World Series. And there's some guys that just can't. And maybe Nick Anderson, if, if you know, Nick Anderson might be one of those guys. If, if you determine that, this reliever gets a little excitable. Uh, let's let's try and craft this game and this strategy so that that guy doesn't have to pitch in the eighth inning. And they don't think about that. They only think about what their numbers have been in these situations. Yeah, I was I was stunned, and I you know I called Jack not because I knew what Jack would say, but I was thinking, you know, people are going to be saying, well, I wonder what Jack thinks about this. So I called him, and he said, "You're like the fifth guy to call me in five minutes." <laughs> and I said, I said, I only need two minutes. And he said, no. Well, first he said, I said, Ricey. And he said, I wonder what you want to talk about. <laughs> but, I mean, he was just, it, it, he was resigned more than bitter. You know, he was just, I just don't get it. Mookie, he just struck Mookie out twice. Why do we have to get him out of the game so he doesn't face Mookie? It is amazing. We're sitting, it's like 29 years ago this week, and John Smoltz well, is on the day. call of the game. Same day. Same day. Yeah, Smoltz <laughs> on the call, and, and Morris, you know, is watching. Pat, can you can you imagine like what if 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 in 2020 Jack Morris is on the mound like the the, the 30 years ago version of Jack Morris, and Tom Kelly walks out of the dugout two steps after that single, even if it's two outs in the eighth, 
if he's throwing his best and he yeah. comes to get him, that's good. He'd still be sitting and refusing to give him the ball. Yeah. Jack would have said, sit down. <laughs> Go back and well, sit he down. He basically told him that in the dugout, you know. That, yeah. Uh, when he said, hey, great job. And he says, I'm going out for the when, when do the So if that game is played now, Patrick, when do those guys get yanked? Because there's no way that they get as far as they did. Probably when Smoltz got yanked. I mean, oh, oh you mean. But I'm saying Jack doesn't get penned. The mentality was then. You know, Joe, Jack might have got hooked after Lonnie Smith. I don't know. Yeah. Right? Rocco would have hooked him for sure. Uh, yeah. Or well, at least tried. Might not have let him go that far. You know, might not let him go that far. All right. I got something else that I really got. I'm upset about hmm. Friday night college football. Yeah. I am not programmed to remember that the Gophers are playing a football game. <laughs> we do not need Friday night college football, even in a pandemic. Do, do you oppose Tuesday night, Tuesday night Maction? <laughs> I don't think he cares. Obviously, they're trying to give the Big Ten Network as many games as they can because they missed three, four weeks for the sponsors, right? But uh, 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 unbelievable. How do you love those Nebraska guys? They wanted a forfeit. Did you, okay, did you see Did you see? so Nebraska wanted a forfeit, and then they tried to set up a game with UT Chattanooga this with, weekend? Without telling the Big Ten yeah. they're trying to do it. And the Big Ten said, buzz off, you're not playing. It's just fantastic. They're oh. going to get screwed at every turn because they keep trying to, like, make up their own rules in Nebraska. Like, like what Like what has Nebraska done in 10 years in the Big Ten to have clout to, like, just try and go rogue, yeah, too? Well, plus, Nebraska also said that, uh, you know, we have to play as many games as we can for college football playoff, you know, credit. Ah, did you see yourself at Ohio State, boys? You don't yeah. have to worry about yeah. it. Okay? That amazing. ain't happening. Don't yeah. worry about it. But, yeah, hey, with this Wisconsin thing, the Gophers, as bad as they were against Michigan, are the, now the favorites to win the West, aren't they? They could be, yeah. They, I mean, Wisconsin might only get – if Wisconsin only plays five games, they're not eligible. Yeah. And if they have to play – and if they come back without – uh, with a fourth string quarterback, uh, you know, the Gophers, all the Gophers have to do is beat Purdue, basically. Yeah. I don't think that the Gophers are capable of losing tonight, even if they try to lose tonight. Oh, I think God. Maryland's that bad. So, oh, I, well, they only gave up what, 40 some to Northwestern, which went 0 9 last year. That's They're a terrible. pretty good indication they got yeah. some problems. Oof. So, all right. Well, Skyima, roll the boat. Go Gophers. Streamyard, huh? Okay. Hey, this didn't turn out too bad. Streamyard. It's pretty good. We got yep. uh, actually. We sh- honestly, we should keep doing it this way. This is great. And I think sometimes your phone cuts out and people get mad. So this could be the okay fix today? for that too. Was it okay today? <laughs> good. Yep. Yeah, so we'll, we'll officially say goodbye to our podcast Cheers, friend, Steve. and uh, we'll talk God to Pat next love week. Love Kelloland. Goodbye. <laughs> See you guys. All right, that's a wrap on Mackie and Judd. Join us for Vikings Vent Line on Sunday on the Purple Daily Podcast YouTube page. See you guys. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. As an Alliant Energy representative, I really enjoy helping businesses save. 
Today, I visited a business that asked for a free energy audit. After walking through their facility, I let the customers know how much money and energy they could be saving. Plus, I gave them an action plan detailing how to improve their energy efficiency. I showed them how they could save even more with rebates from Alliant Energy on equipment upgrades. If you are interested in saving energy and money, schedule a free energy audit at AlliantEnergy.com slash energy audit.